This is a Bible study on chapter 20 of Revelation. We have the final two chapters um, to complete this book. So uh, before getting into this, I'd just like to say a prayer to God. Please be with us as we read this. Please inspire thoughts as we read this to accomplish your will, God. Uh, please help us learn from this, help us apply this to our life, help us recognize what you have in store for us in the future, and just be with us as we go through the future. In Jesus' name, amen. So the thousand years. And so right before this, um, we have the, <clears throat> the, um, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the burning lake or the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So now it's continuing on. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw the thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather to gather them for battle. In, in number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life 
was thrown into the lake of fire. And that ends chapter 20, chapter 20. Actually, when I commented about the chapter, my two favorite chapters, this was not one of them. It's actually chapter 21 and 22, because those are the promises, the future promises of God. Although this is also a promise that this is going to happen, but this is the the negative stuff. When we get to 21 and 22, it's positive. So going back to, first of all, I'm going to go back to my study Bible, and I'm going to read the questions and answers about chapter 20. So, Question, why do the martyrs get to come to life first? A literal reading of verse 4 indicates that only the faithful who were martyred, martyred were are raised from the dead, but this presents a problem because John has elsewhere indicated that the kingdom reign will be shared by every believer who overcomes in chapter 2, verses 26 through 28, and chapter 3 in verse 12 and 21, and is purchased by Christ's blood chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. Unless only the martyrs will reign in the millennium, meaning believers who weren't martyrs will also miss out on the blessing of the first resurrection in from chapter 20, verses 5 through 6. Another explanation is needed. Perhaps the fact that some in John's day were being persecuted to the point of death explains the special encouragement to the martyrs while not implying that others would be left out. Or perhaps the martyrs represent the whole church that is faithful to Jesus, whether or not they have actually been killed. Question, who are Gog and Magog? The phrase Gog and Magog is a reference to the people from the far north, from Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 2, and chapter 39, verse 2. Question, why bind Satan for only a thousand years? There are many different opinions about this thousand-year period called the millennium from the Latin word for thousand. Some think it's a symbolic period of time, not a literal 1,000 years, when Satan's power is restrained as the church fulfills the work of the kingdom. This view is called a millennialism. According to this view, the millennium describes the present reign of Christ in heaven over his realm. The present form of God's kingdom will be followed by Christ's return. Others understand the millennium too in the literal sense of a thousand-year period. Some who hold this view believe that Christ will return to rule over the whole earth, Jerusalem, for a thousand years. This view is called premillennialism. According to this view, during Jesus' thousand-year reign, Satan will be held captive. At the end of that time, Satan will be re- released for one final onslaught against God bringing a final resolution to the ongoing struggle between good and evil. Still, others view the millennium as a wonderful ideal period which the world will be Christianized through the increasing impact of the church, which will result in a long period of peace and prosperity. This view is called post-millennialism. According to this view, Christ will return after the millennium. The big picture of Revelation 20 suggests that Satan is restricted and cannot marshal the evil nations to make a final effort to destroy the church until God permits him to do so. Through the years, Satan continues to attack the church through anti-Christian forces, but God has yet to release him and give him one more opportunity to have his way with believers. In other words, for a period of time determined by God, symbolized by the thousand years, Satan will not be given any opportunity to mount an attack against the church.
then um, the next question is, uh, what kind of eternal torment must the devil endure? The lake of burning sulfur describes unimaginable and never-ending pain. However, even this extreme picture is limited in its ability to describe the intensity of pain in the spiritual realm. Question, what are these books that will be opened? These books, like ledgers, contain exhaustive records of every evil act, word, and thought of the unrighteous. Some think they may also include the deeds of the righteous that will be rewarded, according to what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. The book of life, however, contains only names, not deeds. Those who have by grace believed and trusted God for new life through Christ will have their names listed in the book of life. And then uh, there's another article, See uh, What is the Book of Life? Um, and that's on another page. So um, let me get to that page about the Book of Life. It seems like it already described what that was, but let's see what this part says. What Question, what is the Book of Life? This is a common biblical metaphor derived from the ancient practice of keeping a list of citizens. It, re it represents God's record of those who are part of his kingdom. The Book of Life contains a record of all those who accept Jesus Christ as Savior and therefore receive eternal life. Then question, how do the sea, death, and Hades relate to one another? These three terms are used to describe the universal scope of judgment. No one will escape. All will be raised to face judgment. The sea represented chaos in the ancient world. Death and Hades probably mean the same thing. Each portrays the idea that the dead await final judgment. When the judgment is complete, death and Hades will themselves be thrown into the lake of fire, no longer to be feared. Question, what is the second death? Eternal separation from God, the destiny of the wicked. Those sentenced to the lake of fire forever experience this second death. And that's the end of um, what the study guide has on the common questions in the book of Revelation. So um, getting back to certain things that I had written down or underlined as I was going through this is um, there are, so obviously the, this is the interesting part to me was um, I had the same questions that actually came up with other people had, and I don't know the answer because it does seem like the people who reign with God are the ones who were beheaded, but I don't, I don't know what happens during that time. And I don't think the Bible is clear enough to indicate that all believers or it's, if it's just the ones who were martyred, who will be coming to life and reigning with Jesus. It would be awesome if all people were, it would be fun to do that, to reign with Jesus. Um, we'll just have to wait and see. And as it said in the question, there were other references that Paul had written that people would, um, and let's see that, um, 
shared by every every believer. That's in chapter 2, verses 26 through 28 in chapter 3. Actually, it's not Paul, it's John. So let's look up chapter 2, verses 26, and see exactly what that says. Um, chapter 2, verse 26. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you to remain in him. I don't know, that just didn't seem to indicate to me that that was chapter... Oh, shoot, I'm in the wrong book. Sorry about that. <laughs> I just opened to the wrong... I don't know how I got there. I was like, that didn't seem to make any sense. Okay, then now going to chapter 2, uh, verse... Whoops. Chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 26. Um, to the one... This is written to the church in... Thyre... Thyatira, I guess it's a Thyatira. I'm not sure. Thyatira. I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's a church in Turkey. And this is when Jesus appeared to John at first and he had messages for each of the churches. So in chapter two, he says to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over nations. That one will rule with them will rule, rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this church was um, one that uh, when Jesus was talking to them. He said, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you're doing more than you did at first. But then he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I And then he goes on about her. So anyway, um, those are the people who overcome, who get rid of their sexual immorality and eating of food sacrificed to idols. Those will be the ones who Jesus will allow to rule with him in authority. And then let's go to the other one, which is chapter 3, verse 12 and then 21. So in chapter 3, verse 12 is the one who is victorious I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write my new name. So I don't know. To me, that seems like the new heaven and a new earth. That's I, I think that's after the millennium. That's my personal opinion, though. Um, so it sounds like they will be a pillar. However, though, um, when it talks about the temple of God in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no temple. So actually, you know, I take that back because it says, make a pillar in the temple of my God. So this is to the church of um, 
Philadelphia. And um, it says, um, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And I know that you have little strength, yet, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I, and so it's, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants. Now, I don't, someone had mentioned this before, and it's something to consider. There's, there's clearly not a, something that I can stand on and be like um, dogmatic about this comment, but someone else has mentioned this and um, there's like an hour of trial that's going to come on the whole earth. We know that it says multiple times that God is giving the, the beast and the kings, well, he says he's going to give them a kingdom for one hour. So this is that like global leadership, the ones who don't have a kingdom, but yet for one hour, they will receive this. And that also, when they receive the authority, it could be when they actually administer the mark of the beast, when they have been given that authority by God to do that. And this is the purpose of it is to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now, the the people of Philadelphia, the ones who fit that description, that's in chapter three, perhaps they will be spared from having to go through that. I don't know, because I have always believed that they, the mark of the beast would be upon everyone. And the way I read scripture is the gathering of people doesn't ha- happen until after the mark of the beast occurs. And so that's my understanding of it. So maybe these people are somewhat protected where they don't get, they don't have to experience this because they've already proven to God their love for God and they don't have to go through this test. I don't know, but whatever it is, the only thing that I think is applicable to all of us and important for all of us is to get prepared now so that no matter when it happens, you're already prepared. You're not preparing, trying to prepare at the last minute. And when things are going even into more chaos than they are today, to try and have a level head about getting to know God. I mean, sure, it can happen at any time. But when you're under a lot of duress, um, it certainly, you know, once God's wrath happens, it sounds like there are very few people who choose to submit to God because they're angry with him because of everything bad that's happening. So, um, and once Jesus is visible and returns, that's when the wrath begins to happen and people, you know, hide themselves in rocks and say, um, you know, hide us from him. So that's when, personally, I believe that's when the trumpets happen and the, and the bowls happen. Um, so I believe that the people who uh, I believe that is part of God's wrath because it says as um, as the sixth seal, when, um, you know, the, the I guess the events in the world about the earth are the sun going dark and the moon not giving, or the sun, the, the sun and the moon and the stars, it has some signs and there's a darkness and then the stars fall from the sky. And I wonder if that's when 
they literally are given their ability to reign for a period of time. So there's a lot of confusion about the timing of events, but I think the most important thing in Revelation is to understand what's written in the book so that when the event does happen, you will recognize it based on what prophecy tells us about future events so that you will at least recognize it because the the bottom line is God wins. And the bottom line, the other bottom line is that we have to be prepared and that Jesus made it possible for us to be there, but we don't just get there because not everybody in the world is going to be saved. So you have to prepare in order to be saved. And that's that's the important, really important part. Um, so anyway, there's going to be some people who will... Um, the ones who had didn't worship the beast, didn't receive the mark. And it also says, you know, he, he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded and because of the word of God, and they had not worshiped the beast or the image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So, only in hindsight will we know what happened. And then I also, on the side comment, I put um, the in Zechariah 14, verse 16, that's where I realized that not everyone is destroyed. So when Christ comes back to reign for a thousand years and people will be there, there will be mortal and immortal people present at the same time, which is, this is going to be like, a really interesting time period because some of the earlier prophets that are in the from the Old Testament they describe what it's going to be like. There's going to be like this um, incredible amount of peace between animals. Between I mean, there's just like no fear. There's nothing that you have to worry about at all. Um, I, I guess maybe that's probably not the right word to use, but. It's just going to be a different world than what we live in today. Like uh, a cobra snake, it says something about a toddler or a child playing with a snake and not worrying about being bit by it. You know, that couldn't necessarily happen today. There would be that fear of getting bit by that and the reality of that too. I mean, it's not common that a child could play with a cobra snake and never have to think it would ever bite them. And the lion and the lamb, you know, lying down together. So... um you know, that can be symbolic, but it also, it just talks about a peacefulness. So it, it probably will be an amazing time. And it would be like, I don't know, I think most of the people who uh, are believers would love to be a part of it, would love to see this happening. Um, but we'll just see what, what God decides about it and who is there and who has to wait for the second uh, resurrection. Then there's, um, the judgment of Satan, that was when I first read the Bible. See, I had no concept about any of this before reading the Bible. And it was, a, you know, the first time I read it, I thought, well, it kind of was concerning. I'm like, oh, why is Satan led back again? I mean, why don't you just get rid of him for good? And then nobody will have to worry about it. And I don't know the answer to that either. But apparently, he does get a time to come back. And apparently, the people who had been under Christ's reign will still rebel against him because it says the number, they are like the sand on the seashore. So that's a lot of people that are gathered to battle 
against against Jesus. And um, but the thing is, they they march across the breadth of the earth, and I don't know who they, why they think they'll win over God, but they apparently do. And then fire comes down from heaven and devours them. And this is when Satan, the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So it's clear here that the beast is really evil. The false prophet is very evil and the devil are all evil. And those are the three and they will all be sent to this place tormented and and it's not like you know we think of death we think of that as some kind of permanence there is no death i mean after reading the bible what i realized is that there is immortality for everyone but your living conditions when you are immortal when you transition from this life on earth as we know it it's going to be very different for people some will be living in paradise, and some will be tormented, constantly seeking and never being fulfilled. And this is the reality of all of us. This is like our future. And what we do does matter because we will have a placement in one of those two places. There's not any other third place. It's that or the other. So what you do today does matter. And that's the whole reason why I actually do this podcast is because when I first realized this, it became, as they say, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So if you fear this judgment and you fear what could happen to you, it does. You, you know, that's where wisdom starts. You start finding out, like, you want to know more about what's in scripture and how do I make sure that I do not end up in that burning lake of sulfur. The Bible tells us how. And um, a lot of people, this is another thing that I get upset with sometimes with um, some, uh, I guess I'll call them lukewarm churches because they will, um, they only say one aspect. They only focus on love and they say, you know, like the bottom line is everything is love and the two greatest commandments. Jesus said that, you know, to love God and to love your neighbor. But here's what we need to also remind ourselves from scripture. What does love mean? It doesn't mean like the lust of the world and stuff like that. It has a completely different meaning. And um, there, so there, Paul does describe um, what love is. And it gives all these attributes of God. And that's a good thing. And it's basically, it boils down to selflessness is really what love is. But here's the other part of love. When Jesus talked about love, he says, if you love me, or if you love my father, you will obey the commandments. So we can't get around obedience to the commandments because if you love God, you will obey his commands. And if you don't love God, you won't obey his commands. So that right there is the choice. So if you want to say that Jesus was all about love, God's all about love. Yes, he is. But you have to know what love means. And you have to know that our choices do impact our future. 
and that we need to know what love is. And we need to, um, if you, you know, claim to be a Christian, yet you're not living according to God's commands, you're fooling yourself. And that scares me because that means that you're not truly saved. If you continue to sin, to do things with with your conscience, not like an accidental, whoops, I messed up and I don't ever want to do that again. But if you just keep on doing the same thing that you know is wrong, that scripture tells you is wrong, but you keep living it and you just, you just think, well, I'll just keep saying, you know, asking for forgiveness from God. That's not how it works. That's not true repentance. And you're only kidding yourself if you think that by doing that, you're going to be in God's kingdom. Because the Bible is really clear. In fact, when we go into the next couple of chapters, you'll see how true that is. And if you even go back to Revelation at the first chapters, when um, Jesus is giving a message to all of the churches, he keeps telling them they need to repent. To repent is something not just, it's not, it's a changed being. You have to change your life. You can't continue to keep on doing it. But the thing is, everybody thinks, well, I can't do that. You know, you get that excuse or you say it yourself, you know, you say that excuse yourself, like, it's too hard. I tried before. I can't do it. Well, that's because you haven't fully surrendered. It's not like it's going to be easy, but every little decision that you make that um, brings you closer to living according to God's commands is, is a step in the right direction. And Jesus said, Jesus knows our heart. God knows our heart. And if we sincerely want to obey his commands but struggle with that, Jesus promised an advocate, the Holy Spirit, that he would get from the Father and give to his followers. And that is, you know, over and over again, Scripture tells us it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not us doing this. Like, we... We just have to surrender ourselves to open ourselves up to receiving the Holy Spirit, which is necessary for us to raise from the dead also, and to have the immortal bodies that are promised in Scripture as well. So it's it's a process, but it's like that's what we need to do so that we know that we are going to be in God's kingdom in the future. So then it tells us in here the judgment of the dead. So it, you know, there's a thousand year reign. And I, I guess I fall into the category of belief. Um, like when I, let's see, the first one is saying that um, the first group is the amillennialism. And they're talking about the present reign in Christ over his realm. It's talking about like we're in that time right now, that thousand year period of time. It's um, not a literal, it's just symbolic, but it's um, it's the reign of Christ in heaven over his realm. And I don't see that supported in scripture. I'm just, um, I don't see that life here on earth is, is this paradise or this beautiful description that we'll get to in chapters 21 and 22. So I just, just discount that. I don't agree with that. And then there's the pre-millennialism, which I guess that's, that's what I believe is that we're here right now. The thousand year reign hasn't occurred yet. It's coming up in the future. And, um, 
I believe in the literal sense of that happening. And then there's um, another view, which is the post-millennialism, which according to this view, Christ will return after the millennium. But that doesn't make sense to me because in chapter 20, it says that people are coming to life and reigning with Christ a thousand years. So if they're reigning with Christ, he would be here. So I don't understand that one either. So anyway, um, maybe there's other scripture that support those things, but those are the reasons why I believe what I believe. And then um, when we get to the end of that period, that's when it says that the, everybody, everybody is going to be raised up and have to be presented in front of God, in front of authority. So um, all the dead and the books were open. So it's interesting, this book of life, uh, it's, it is referenced throughout scripture in different ways. But um, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So it does say besides, you know, it says that there's a recording of of our actions on in earth. And as I read that today, I was thinking about, I think it's in Jeremiah, where it talks about God knowing every hair on our heads, like this God knows every detail about us. And so if he knows every single hair on our head, if he knows that type of detail, he's going to know way more details about our life. I mean, if that, if he knows that insignificant to us detail about every little hair on our head, then he certainly knows more about what we've done in our life. And then we're going to have to give an account for that. Um, the people, it sounds like the people who had um, not accepted Christ as a covering. Now this gets into a lot of deep theological information about about what Christ does. You can go all the way back to the Passover. Um, when Moses took the people out of Egypt, Exodus, I guess Exodus would be the point. But the Passover was when there was going to be an angel that was going to kill the firstborn, I believe, of everyone. And the only way that people were to be protected by it is to put the blood of a lamb, which is symbolic of Jesus and the suffering on the cross that he did, the blood that he poured out for all of mankind. They were to put put that on the doorpost and then that angel of death would pass over those houses and not take that firstborn. And this was like a a plague, angel of death plague that came across all of the area. And, um, so that that was the first thing and um that happened and then of course um Jesus's um actual death on the cross and resurrection is where he broke the curse that was on mankind since the beginning of time when sin entered um in the um uh, story of Adam and Eve when sin first entered and corrupted the world so um, when mankind first gave in to sin, as described in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, that's where all of humankind, it said, surely you will, um, you will die the day that you sin. And um, one day to God is a thousand years. So if you look back in the Old Testament in Genesis, you'll see that people lived to be 600 
500, 900 years old, but none of them reached the thousand years. And a, a day is like a thousand years to God. So that's really significant. And then um, after the flood, I believe, is when God said, you know, humankind, mankind got so corrupted because of some angelic being or celestial being interaction with people that caused sin to even flourish even more, a spiritual aspect with people that you can read about in Genesis. But after that, then God said that he's no longer going to contend with humans and 120 years will be its max. And it looks to me like the maximum lifespan of a person now was shortened to 120 years because of this. Now, when you go back to the prophets about what they talk about during the millennium, that people are going to live longer again. It's going to be like back in the book of Genesis. So it's going to be a completely different time than what we know about. But then going back to um, if we are covered, that's the whole point. If we are covered by the blood of the lamb, which is symbolic for Jesus on the cross, if we are in Christ, if we have surrendered ourselves to him and believe that you know all of that happened and that we are covered by that, if we're believers and we have repented of our sins and received the Holy Spirit um, you know, as a deposit of our eternal guarantee, all of that, we will be covered by Jesus, where we will not be judged by our sins. God will no longer remember the stuff that we did in the past before we came to Christ. And so that is the good news about what Jesus offers. Jesus offers, because all of us are sinners, so Jesus offers us that covering to protect us from judgment. Um, the ones who are, it says the dead were judged, and this could be spiritually dead, or this could, this is obviously, obviously physically dead as well, but often throughout the Bible, it talks about the dead, the people who have not accepted Jesus are also referred to as the dead. So if you don't have Jesus to cover you, then you are going to be judged based on what you have done as recorded in these books. And you're going to be judged by someone who knows every single hair on your head. There's nothing that you can hide. It's completely exposed and you will have to give an account for it in front of God. So that's why everyone is so happy about receiving, accepting Jesus and surrendering to Jesus because then no longer will our sins be remembered. But you can't abuse grace. And Paul does talk about this and others, um, I think James does and maybe Jude also. There's many times, many others, I'm, I'm sure there are more than three witnesses, but you can't abuse grace. Like Jesus does cover us for our sins. But if we just use that as a license to continue sinning, we're fooling ourselves. That's a deception. That's a deception that concerns me that churches, some churches promote. They just say, you're saved by grace. Well, it's not a one and done kind of a, you know, forgive me for my sin and then let me go out and do some sinning again. And then I'll just say forgiveness, you know, ask for forgiveness again. That, that's not the way it works. It's like you are changing your life. You're, you're um, saying, you know, that old life is dead. Like I'm putting an end to that. I don't want to do that anymore, but I need help with it. 
and asking God for that help. That's what true repentance is. And if you haven't had, if you haven't undergone, um, if you don't have a changed life as a result of your surrender, if your life doesn't begin to start changing or you don't see change or you don't change your decisions before and after, if there's not a clear change of person, of character, then you might want to reconsider that you may not be saved and you may want to read scripture so you understand it better and call up to God as soon as possible because if anything happens, if you die before Jesus returns, whatever you, whatever condition you die in is what you're going to be placed before God in. So if you have not accepted Christ, if you have not truly repented, truly surrendered your life to God's will, if you have not done that and you die, then you are going to be judged by the way you were living and you are not protected by Christ because you have not been saved according to what Jesus says. I mean, Jesus went back to the churches. Go and read the first book of Revelation to all the churches. And every single church, except for I think two of them, he told them all to repent. So churches are filled with believers. So why would a believer have to repent? Really? So it's because there's not a one time, not a one and done kind of a thing. It's an ongoing way of living. So you know, don't just take my word for it. Look in scripture. But I struggled with that concept as well. I didn't, I wanted to know the truth. It doesn't help us just because we like what one thing says that sounds better. And we think, oh, we're protected that way. And I'm just going to believe this because it's easier for me. That's foolish. Because if you just want an easy way out, what if it's not the truth? What if just because you wanted something that was easy, means that you're not going to be in eternity with God. That's what I would say. I don't want to know what I want to hear. I want to know what the truth is. And then I have to deal with what the truth is. And I have to take action based on what the truth is, not on, you know, whatever sounds best. So it does say that in the end times, people will be um, something that if you look up tickle their ears, that's how it refers to, but people will believing a false doctrine that tickles their ears, that sounds good to them, that sounds positive, but yet it's not the truth. And the people who are spreading those things, um, the leaders of churches who promote those things, they're going to have to do an extreme reckoning with God. And at, at Judgment Day, if they don't change that, there is severe... Um, judgment that's going to be coming on them. And they don't realize that. I mean, there's a point in scripture, another thing that's kind of scared me. And like, like I said, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But um, there, there's a point where Jesus was saying that, you know, people asking to get into the kingdom, but the door is shut because they have not prepared themselves or saying, well, Jesus, I, I did this. I prophesied in your name. I did all these things, you know, list off all the good things that they did. And Jesus says, depart from me, you evildoers. I do. I never knew you. So um, there's, that's, you know, a fearful thing to think about. Like when you get, you have no way to change it, you know, you're, you're dead. And now you're trying to 
come into God's eternity because you think you've done all these traditions and you've gone to church every Sunday or whatever you've done that is your good thing. You've done all these good things, but yet you didn't know Jesus. You didn't have a changed life. You kept on sinning. Maybe you would every once in a while confess your sins or something or ask for forgiveness, but you didn't. it wasn't an ongoing way of life. There's a difference. I mean, why do you think Jesus said that there's a narrow road and a wide road? And most are on the wide road, are then go through the narrow gate. Um, there, you know, even when you look at the 144,000 who are saved from, whether that's symbolic or literal, from Israel, 12,000 from each tribe, then you just, you just have to if it's just symbolic, it's just showing you that there's a small percentage of mankind that is going to prepare themselves and, um, or who, you know, in the case of the people of Israel, it's God's seal is put on them and um, the angels go out and seal God's people. But I have a feeling that that's also because of what they, what their heart is like, the condition of their heart and that they have been faithful to God. And so God does reward them for that um, in the last days. But seriously, if you don't believe what I'm saying, look through scripture, because this is a, a very, very, this is like a life and death kind of a thing to get right. You've got to know the truth about it. And don't take my word, look for it yourself and really seek for the truth and pray. Ask God. God says, if you seek me, you will find me. So if you are sincerely asking God to make this clear to you, you can bet God will make it clear to you. And that's another thing about sometimes our intuition, our instinct, or the kind of feeling that we have, our hesitancy in doing something wrong. When we feel that, I believe that's the Holy Spirit holding us back. Because God does say that he will write on our hearts his commands so that they are with us. So when your conscience is is kind of saying, eh, I don't think you should do that. When you're having that little tug of war, but you, you want to do that, your flesh, that's what they call your flesh, your human nature, wants to do one thing. But you're having this like this little subtle, small, small whisper that's like, Eh, I don't think so. That's not a good thing to do or something. Um, when you're having that thought in your head or whatever it is, that's something to listen to. Anything that holds you back from something that is slightly wrong or you're not quite sure if it's wrong, but you're having a hesitancy, listen to the hesitancy because I believe that is God or the Holy Spirit trying to lead you, to guide you to the right thing. So think about it, look stuff up, and draw the conclusion yourself.